With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Melody Cedarstrom, and you're listening to Financial Survival. Um, today, Alfred Addis will be joining James Corbett of the Corbett Report as they join each other each day, or each Thursday, I should say. And uh, uh, I will be joined with uh, after the market report with Wendy Wilson of Apothecary Herbs. She's got some great information. We're going to be talking about RoboDocs. Sounds like a, a great uh, interview with Wendy. But first, let's get to the market report for Thursday, May 14th, 2015. Uh, Gold prices hit a three-month high today. Of course, we had a great day yesterday, so we had some good follow-through with gold. Uh, It's off the highs of the day, but still, um, I would have liked to have seen it close above that 120, or I should say 1224 level, but we're close. Uh, gold is up 640 at 12.22. Silver's up 31 cents at 17.51, and silver the silver's futures remain at a three-month high today. Also, the U.S. dollar hit a nearly a four-month low in overnight trading. Uh, it did rebound, um, but uh, let's go on with the platinum. Platinum was up $10 at 11.62, and palladium down four at 7.85. The USDX today down 0.26 at 93.42 and pressure on oil down 73 and that brings us back down below 60 at 59.77 and the paper markets today they were up strong uh, they opened and they stayed strong about 180 for most of the day uh, and it's uh, topping out at 191 191 points up at 18,252 the NASDAQ, let's see, is uh, up 69 points, 5,050. The S&P up 22 at 21.21. And 10-year yield, 2.24, down just a little. <clears throat> but the euro, of course, with all that pressure that we've seen on the U.S. index, U.S. dollar, uh, you have the euro trading at 1.14%. I guess there was some sort of a holiday in European markets, so uh, uh, not a lot of action there, fairly quiet in Europe, and uh, the Asian markets also were fairly quiet with the Shanghai doing the best. Um, Let's see if there's any information here that I'd like to share with you before we bring on Wendy. Uh, The U.S. job market today, that did help lift the stock markets. Uh, today, applications for unemployment aid fell last week. It's interesting. They say sending the four-week average down to its lowest level in 15 
years. That means it's the lowest level since April of 2000. You know, it's hard to compare today's jobs, the unemployment, to April of 2000. And uh, certainly it's a lot of people falling off and they don't get their benefits anymore. I don't think it's so much as a great um, job recovery. So, again, you have to look to see why the, you know, why is it at the lowest level since April of 2000? Uh, We also have falling prices, the producer price index uh, that tracks the prices of goods and services before they reach consumers. That fell 0.4% last month. And again, it's just another sign that the Federal Reserve could be holding off and raising key interest rates until later this floor or later this fall, as uh, with uh, that particular index, it would point to inflation not being a big issue. So therefore, the Fed's going to wait. So I can't wait to see what they're going to come up with in September uh, to keep the Fed from moving those interest rates higher. But uh um, you know, they're between a rock and a hard place, folks. Not a good place to be. And it's not a good place to be if you don't have any gold and silver uh, with them being between the rock and the hard place. So give us a call at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. You don't want to be caught between the rock and the hard place without your gold. Wendy Wilson should be here with Apothecary Herbs. Good afternoon, Wendy. Good afternoon, Melody. How you doing? I'm doing just great, just great. And uh, you're going to talk a little bit about uh, these uh, robo-docs? Yeah, we, we've got this data science industry that's going to pretty much infiltrate the healthcare industry. Um, pros and cons to that, people for and against it. Um, and people want, you know, the healthcare industry to be more efficient, more cost-effective. You know, what business wouldn't want that for their bottom line? And the healthcare industry really isn't any different. So back um, in 1962, the auto industry started replacing human employees with robots. And since 1980, basically we've had a new robot enter the marketplace every month. So this is not new. So ro- robots entering... Uh, healthcare and influencing maybe life and death uh, situations. Well, that's an area that some people have a concern with. So, healthcare is moving possibly in that direction to use more robot machines. And basically, they want to eventually replace 80% of what doctors, surgeons, anesthesiologists, and dentists, what they do. So, we're going to take a look at robots. Uh, you know, and I, I got to ask the question: Who does, who said let's take a robot off the assembly line and put him in the exam room or the OR? What brainiac <laughs> said that? Right? <laughs> well, know, um, yeah. Well, you know, when you think about robots doing surgeries, uh huh. You know, <laughs> I'm glad I'm not going to be around. <laughs> well, you know, can a robot think on his feet? or pads, or whatever he's standing on. But uh, Fortune magazine actually did a story on the future of healthcare and what it might look like. And um, they're convinced, though, that technology will improve healthcare and all the experiences patients have. Uh, it's going to make the jobs of physicians better. That's what they think. Uh, and they, they, quote, they have this quote. They said, healthcare today is often really the practice of medicine rather than the science of medicine. 
So they want to see, you know, data science kind of take over medicine. Now, according to their report, the University of Miami did this study, Melanie, in 2005, where they withheld aspirin or ibuprofen from a group of patients when they developed a fever. So under the experiment, the group that did not get these types of drugs when a fever began had more successful recoveries and fewer deaths than the patients that were given the drugs. So the trial was actually stopped by the team leaders who felt that it was now unethical to allow patients to receive the standard treatment, you know, give them aspirin for a fever. So will program robots make such a call? Ask yourself that. Now, experts in favor of more automation really don't have a problem with robots making decisions because they're going to be outfitted with artificial intelligence, and that should cover any program issue. What do you think of that? Well, you know, there's more and more of these uh, folks that are coming out and saying, you know, this artificial intelligence, people should be, you know, very frightened of it, that it is the end of you know, um, you know, it's really the end. It's it's something they believe that in a hundred years, these mm-hmm. robots will be, you know, they will overtake. We yeah, certainly they'll run the re- world. Yeah, our us our, our little carbon units. That's what they often refer to us in sci-fi. We're carbon units. We're nothing. <laughs> yeah, we're nothing. But and but well, we already know that China is out there buying up all types of robots. Right. Uh, to plates in their factories, and, uh, sure. you know, they have no problems replacing people. Uh, they have no. no problems with people dying because they can't eat and they starve. There's certainly not a humanitarian-type uh, um, country, so it's... I know, but, but the thing is, is you know, let's say you're, you're, you, you're in an accident, God forbid, and you you got a trauma issue, and, and you're just whisked to the hospital probably via a drone, and there you are in the emergency room, and Instead of a human face leaning over you, it's a machine, right? So I don't know what's worse, a robot that's programmed to follow instructions, standard of care, or one that can arbitrarily decide to change procedure. Think about it. Um. (laughs) Yeah. She's speechless, I think. No, I really am. I'm still back on taking the ride to the hospital on the drone. Oh, hey! Oh. Now, who do patients who do patients sue when a machine is taken yeah. care of? The manufacturer, the the, the, the robot. <laughs> well, uh, well, the thing is, is they're saying let's get machines because human error is part of the problem in practicing medicines. People are concerned with things like um, sleep deprivation of doctors, drug dependency of doctors, ethics, morals—all part of the human condition. And they're saying, well, none of that's going to influence RoboDoc over here. So, well, here's the basic concept I think people miss. You can't have something that's created without having a creator, and the creator influences the created, right? So do you remember that movie uh, Starman with Jeff Bridges? It was a 1984 movie. He played Mm -hmm. an alien, okay? He came down to Earth. And he learned to drive a car by watching humans, okay? And he was driving actress Karen Allen in this one scene in the movie, and he ran a yellow light, and uh, Karen called him out on it. But he replied, no, I watched you very carefully. Green light, go. Red light, stop. Yellow light, go very, very fast. Okay? (laughs) 
So they're going to be programmed to, you know, do what humans do, make mistakes, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So human error, they say, costs too many lives. Misdiagnosis is the primary argument. But mach- machines are going to have their own obstacles. Think about this. Are, are they going to be able to deal with patients that lie to them or can't remember facts? Are they going to be able to pick up on those subtleties? Right? Do, do, do doctors really do now? <laughs> I mean, you're yeah. in and out of their offices so much, so, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you kind of miss that. And, and I think, too, someone mentioned to me the other day, they says, well, you know, you used to have a lot of compassion from the people. You know, if you went into the healthcare industry, you wanted to help people. Nurses mm-hmm. became nurses because they wanted to help people. They wanted to mm-hmm. uh, be there. And now, because there's lack of jobs in other industries, you have people getting into this healthcare area just for the job they're, right. they're, they're they have no i you know they, they don't want to help people they just want to show up for a paycheck so yeah you're 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 right about that but here's the thing we we also want to focus on in this um science data-driven medical industry we're going to have um they're going to program the robot to overhaul treatment and the machines are going to pick up on a whopping 80 percent of your current doctor obligations so they're going to be doing diagnoses, tests, return office visits, writing prescriptions, and assessing patient behavior. So essentially the robots will take over the initial contact with patients and formalize a treatment plan for them. So we're told this will cut down on errors and overhead, but that just describes basically what your general practitioner now does, right? So they're calling, experts are calling this rebalancing our healthcare and they predict the robots will be bringing almost an immediate 50% improvement overall to the healthcare system. But if doctors are replaced by machines, so will our ends, uh, other lab technicians, and so on. So what all this means is this data science technology contribution to medicine will take over triage, diagnosis, and decision-making parts of your treatment, which means we're going to need fewer doctors. And if we don't, and you know a robot's not going to sit in class and cram for exams, so this is going to impact medical school, mm-hmm. right? And here's the other thing. If we, got a, if we got this, you know, developing intelligence, artificial intelligence, who is going to be eventually superior to us carbon human units, um, doctors, humans won't be able to care for themselves anymore. They won't be able to become doctors. I don't know. I just see. I just see. It could go very, very wrong. Let me read you this quote. If we got a minute, I want to read you this quote by um, Greg Fairhair. He's a medical consultant. He says this about this. He says logic has the potential to make healthcare better, but only if resulting interpretations are applied by caring doctors and ones available in su- sufficient numbers to meet with and be part of the patient life. So if medical practices are reduced to algorithms, five-year survival rates, which would dictate treatment-producing medical practice uh, ceiling plans, he says the concept of fighting on, breaking the odds, faith, hope, and prayer would be vanquished from medicine, and the human race, he said, would be much poorer for it. End of quote. Mm. Yeah? All right. well, you know, I think one of the things that disturbs me most in, in any area of business that I try to do is people are, they only relate 
any service center or anything like that. They relate to the computer. If the computer doesn't uh, say it, they don't know the answer. Uh, they don't think. They don't use judgment. Um, yep. And it is just there. They, they, they can't adjust and, and make decisions. And this is kind of where this robot seems to be coming in. It's mm -hmm. going to be that. And uh, certainly no thought, no judgment, no... Um, it will be a very bizarre world in which Well, it is, but I'm, I'm just saying, okay, because a lot of uh, successful medical treatments we had today came about through trial and error. Mm -hmm. And if, 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 if data science is going to get rid of that, you know, I doubt robots are going to be capable of, you know, deciding on trying something just based on a hunch, you know? And sometimes that's when miracles happen. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there are other areas that we do have computers. Of course, you understand uh, autopilots and aircrafts, stock exchange algorithmic trading, uh, mm -hmm. and now Google's self-driving car. You know, I, I just want to ask the people, what are you guys going to accept out there? What are you going to allow the future to be? Because choices today will determine what generations to come are going to be held to. Thanks. Unfortunately, those listening to the program, you know, agree with us, but yet all those young folks, all these kids, they love growing, they're growing yeah. up in this world are being conditioned to love it. And yeah. they don't, they, they can't see the big picture. They don't see the future. There's such a big disconnect uh, from any older generation to these young kids anymore. So, um I personally you know. like to take a break from technology from time to time. I like it. Absolutely. <laughs> but Ab I, I say to people, prescriptions can weaken the system, so look for foods and herbs that can strengthen the system. If they want to learn more, we can send them a free product catalog, and our number is toll-free at 866-229-3663, 866-229-3663, or they can visit us on the website at thepowerherbs.com. Thank you, Wendy. We'll be talking to you next Wednesday. You'll be back on next Wednesday. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Alfred and James Corbett will be joining you here in the, just, in the next few minutes right after these short breaks. condition and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option, you need our emergency heart attack kit. Five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle, strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one-pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. Call Apothecary Herbs now for your emergency heart attack kit, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. 
international callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the three w's dot thepowerherbs.com. Food prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Are you concerned about prescription drug dependency to stay healthy? Are you worried that the cost and availability of your medications may put your health at risk? Perhaps it's time you consider a natural, safe, and effective way to deal with your health problems. If only you knew where to start. Start right here. Tune in to Herb Talk Live with herbalist Wendy Wilson every Tuesday and Thursday evening, 7 p.m. on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, where your health care options just became endless. Folks, I'm Alfred Ask here on Financial Survival Programs brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver, 1-800-375-4188. Our guest is James Corbett from the Corbett Report, C-O-R-B-E-T-T, report.com. James, is uh, he lives in Japan, been there for 10 years or more. And uh, if you're interested in an intellectual perspective on what's happening in the world, Visit the Corbett Report, C-O-R-B-E-T-T, report.com. James, how are you doing? Well, to be honest, I'm always a little bit nervous coming on with you, Alfred, because I never know what direction you're going you're gonna to take this week. So I'm always trying to, <laughs> to bone up on and study every possible story you might bring up, and I always get it wrong. So no, I'm, I'm always excited to see what we're going to talk about. I think you're prepared for all of this. Uh, I think you've probably... I'm not sure if you've had a computer grafted into your brain or an internet connection <laughs> or something like that, but I know it, I am hard pressed to find a subject to talk about where I can expect you to be completely lost and say, "What the heck is he talking about?" I've got one here from uh, I've got one here from the what is this China Daily Mail? Uh, let me just scroll up at the top. Take a look here. Yeah, China Daily Mail. And the headline is, China changes its strategy towards Japan. Unrelenting pressure has produced far greater costs than benefits for China. Does that sound like an accurate description of what's happening with China policy to Japan? And what do you think about China in general? They're building islands or in the South China Sea, if I understand correctly, that they intend to 
thousand miles offshore. I don't know if it's that far, but certainly several hundred miles offshore. They're building and building islands in the ocean that they will claim for themselves. What's happening with China right now? You are correct about that. Uh, uh, what was the, uh, the 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 quote from that? Well, article? the headline is China changes its strategy toward Japan. Unrelenting pressure has produced far greater costs than benefits for China. Hmm. Are they easing up on Japan right now? Do you perceive that or hear it? And uh, uh, well, I, w- I would say there's been certainly a, a bit of a, a détente. Uh, from 2012 or thereabouts, where we saw mm-hmm. the, the real heating up over the island disputes in the East China Sea, the Senkaku Islands, as they're called in Japan. Yep. Um, there was obviously a, a, a lot of pressure building up over that, and we saw some big protests, some anti-Japanese protests in China, some uh, some nationalist sentiments here in Japan. So we saw a lot of that being whipped up at the time, and I think that was perhaps related to uh, Xi Jinping being relatively new in power at the time and trying to establish his his sort of uh, his his authority and his control over the people. But the best way to do that is always to direct them at a bo- boogeyman. And then on the other side, you had uh, Abe was campaigning at that time, and uh, his his base is really that nationalist uh, uh, base in in Japan. So I think they were both playing to political crowds, and I think that might have been part of the reason why it seemed to be fanning, the flames were being fanned at that time, and perhaps part of the reason why that's been backed off since then. I think uh, there's still, of course, there's regular stories about Japan scrambling jets to to, uh, to deal with Chinese fighter jets that are straying into their space, and all that sort of thing still continues to happen, but it's not really the pressing issue that it was back a, a few years ago, and it's not being trumpeted and, and played out in the media quite as much. So I think there's been a, a backing off. Um, and I, I place it more within that political context, although I, I'm sure there are probably other reasons for that as well. Well, here's one of the reasons. The article says Japan's direct investment in China fell by 38.8% year-on-year in 2014 to $4.33 billion. So Japan had been investing in China, presumably trying to make ties that would make it make military conflict improbable and something they wouldn't people wouldn't want to get into i'm i'm guessing but i i would you know do you think that's a reasonable guess yes well there may even just be straight economic reasons for okay. not wanting to invest in china at this time obviously there has been that slowdown um in the export heavy economy of china as it tries to struggle to perhaps make a transition to more of a domestic-based economy. So it is, I think, uh, a less attractive investment than it has been over the past 15 years. So there, there, I think there may just be straight economic reasons for not wanting to, to put so much capital into China at this time, and that's exacerbated by those kind of political tensions mm-hmm. that we know But they are... might be misinterpreted to be a result of the political tensions mm. rather than the fact that Japan is short on cash. It, exactly right. Yeah. yeah. All right, I got another one here from the here's uh what's this World Politics Journal. The European Central Bank's asset purchases program helps to end the Eurozone's four month spell of deflation. I'm just interested in whether you think the E C B the uh the European Central Bank is actually have they paid in enough money, injected enough money into the European economy to end deflation? And do you see 
the economies of the globe tending more for deflation or are we going back to inflation? What do you think is more likely? Well, there is, as we've talked about before, there is definitely a deflationary undertow right now. As, yeah. um, and, and obviously what the past five years or so has been about is this attempt to inflate uh, the bubble faster than it's deflating. And so we've seen unprecedented, literally world historically unprecedented amounts of money being created through all of these unconventional monetary tools by various central banks. And in fact, China looks like it's going to be the next to, to engage in this as, as we say, it's export driven economies being, uh, being hurt right now by the fact that they haven't been able to devalue the, the yuan in the same way that Japan has devalued the yen and uh, the euro has been devalued and the U.S. dollar has been attempted to be devalued. So now apparently China is going to start either engaging in some quantitative easing or engaging in basically a type of uh, bond um, collateral deal with, with some of the banks that, are, that may or may not buy some municipal bonds that are being issued to, to basically try to alleviate some of the debt burden that China is getting into. Um, all of which is very fascinating. The question, of course, is the ECB's actions and their QE program that's, that's just uh, kicked off, is this really going to be what gets the Eurozone out of its deflationary cycle? Uh, I uh, remain incredulous. I think that it may have that cosmetic effect, and it may it may have a real effect on the markets per se in in the coming year or two, but I think it's going to be exactly uh, a similar situation to the Federal Reserve's QE program, which of course is the one that that is the the example that they're all following, the, the playbook that they're all reading from. And in that example, we did have the uh, the Federal Reserve, of course, stepping in with its trillions and trillions that it created and uh, used to buy bonds and mortgage-backed securities and other things. And that did have an effect of at least preventing the uh, the great deflationary cycle from all the deleveraging that was going on. So but, far. Exactly. But of course, now that they've at least taken their, their foot off the gas pedal, as we've talked about with the, uh, the ending of the QE program, and uh, are now actually apparently going to put it on the uh, um, uh, on the break with the the inflation rate adjustment that supposedly is going to come this year. I think we're going to see the the ultimate failure of the QE program because at the end of the day, uh, uh, all the all of this all of these central bank tricks are are really just ways of trying to get people convinced that the the environment is safe enough to start spending and investing capital again, and. I don't think any amount of central European central bank truck is going to convince the European public of that when they see and they feel the reality of what's happened over the past several years on the ground each and every day. We still have ridiculous amounts of unemployment amongst the youth, especially there in the southern European so-called pigs countries. We still have the the fiasco of Greece continuing to unfold and the latest, of course, was that the uh, Greece was allowed to use some of their reserve holdings as a payment against their IMF, uh, their IMF payment, the whole... <laughs> which they, they will now have to replace it. right now. They don't have any more. Exactly. Well, they have to replace that back into their reserve holdings uh, one month from now. So all they've done is kick that down the road another month. 
And this will continue to play out. My prediction would be that there will not be a Greek exit from the Eurozone anytime in the foreseeable future, not because of economic reasons. I mean, it should have happened. They never should have been allowed in in the first place, even by the uh, Eurozone's own rules. But I don't think it'll happen for economic reasons. I think it won't happen because of the geopolitical reasons. And uh, uh, Dr. Mark Faber of uh, the Gloom, Boom and Doom report put this very well recently in an interview where he was talking about how the fact that basically Europe and NATO specifically needs Greece as the bulwark against the the so-called Russian threat. And they're not going to let them get out of the Eurozone sphere of influence um, at all. It's just not going to happen. And I tend to agree with that. I just don't think they're going to allow it. So they'll they'll do whatever tricks and chicanery. But uh, still, people, especially in Greece, obviously see through that. There's no there's no fundamental confidence that's being restored in the markets. All that people are doing is seeing that, oh, they're going to paper over this problem. And uh, I don't think that's the fundamental basis for the the, the real kicking off of true economic growth again. So I, I, there are cosmetic effects. There are sort of effects that happen simply from the, the printing of the paper, but I don't think it's a lasting effect. And uh, as soon as they stop with their, you know, funny money from heaven, it's going to be exactly like in the U.S. situation. And if I understand correctly, Greece has dipped into its an emergency fund to pay off $780 million or thereabouts just in the last day or so. And that essentially, according to some reports, has left them basically penniless. They may be able to collect more money as time goes on. You know, they can collect more taxes. But it's interesting to me to compare $780 million, if I understand correctly, paid off in the last week, last few days, maybe just like yesterday, I don't know, but versus the total size of the remaining size of the Greek debt is about $330 billion. Now, they're having all they can do to pay off $780 million. That's like a third of a percent, less than a third of a percent of their total debt. And it just tells us whatever, it tells me at least, that whatever is going to happen in Greece, there's just no way they're going to pay that debt. Um, they may remember, remain a part. They may never get to a Brexit. They may be. They may remain part of the European Union from now until you know hell freezes over. But they're not going to pay that debt, or at least that's the way it appears to me. Do you disagree? Uh, I don't see a way of it mathematically occurring uh, anytime. In, in the foreseeable future. I don't see how they're even going to continue to meet their payments. I think it's going to have to be restructured. And I, I don't think that's going to be a dramatic default because that would be the type of thing that would potentially kick off some sort of political crisis in the Eurozone that can't really be papered over in the same way. So I think they're going to have to reach some sort of agreement. But that agreement, however it comes and in whatever form, will undoubtedly um, just cement and, and, and further ensconce the, the, the banksters' chains around the neck of the Greek people. And again, of course, all of this is in service to the, the kleptocrats in, in the Greek government who were busy plundering off the, uh, the wealth of the country for a very long time and manipulating it into the Eurozone in the first place with the help of Goldman Sachs and all those manipulations and deceptions that took place. It has nothing to do with the, uh, the Greek people themselves, but they're the ones who are left holding the bag and they're the ones that are going to pay for this. And uh, are they really going to pay for revolution, it, Nothing's going to happen. Are they really going to pay for it? And what I mean by that is this. I'm reminded of Iceland. Smaller, it's 
tiny little country. It's more like one city <laughs> rather than a whole country. But just the same, there is a, there's a kind of interesting principle. They were caught in a similar bind. They owed too much money, and they just told the creditors, too bad. <clears throat> we're not paying. And they went through two years, difficult times. They were back on their feet after about two years of just refusing to pay the debt. And now they are one of the more prosperous economies that are associated with Europe. Um, they're doing fine. I can't help wondering what would happen if Greece just said, that's it, we quit. We're not paying. We don't need any deal. We will suffer through 18, 24 months of this. And creditors will say, why don't we lend to Greece? They don't have any debt. Once they wipe out all of the debt they have right now, they become a, a pretty good candidate for borrowing. Now, it'd be high rates and whatever, but I'm wondering, would Greece do better to just say to heck with it, we're done with this, we're not going to try paying it. Sorry about that, but we don't have the money and uh, we can't pay, so we won't pay and let's all get on with our lives. Will Greece collapse into a decade-long depression? Or do you think they could have a couple of bad years and get back on their feet? Well, it is a different situation than Iceland, which for all of the seeming similarities was a different situation insofar as the creditors that they supposedly owed their onerous debt to was uh, where there was no real enforcement mechanism in the same way that we have the direct ties of Greece into the Eurozone, into the IMF to the, uh, the people sitting at the table with them. So I think there's more of a direct uh, uh, sort of leverage that, that they have over Greece right now, simply because they're part of these institutions and they've been involved in this process. I think repudiation of the, the debt as an, as an onerous debt, as a debt that, that an odious debt, I should say, it should happen. I think that's the only, the only real quote-unquote solution to this problem. It's not, it's not even a happy solution in itself because it will lead to pain for the Greek people hmm. and it would lead to the Greek exit from the Eurozone, which would require, well, it wouldn't require, but it would un, uh, undoubtedly lead to the, the creation of uh, the, the recreation of the drachma and that would be backed up by bonds issued by the Greek government and, and there would be vulture, vulture funds that would come in to, to buy up those bonds they won't at be, They won't be rate. doing them a favor. They will be, yeah. they'll pay a high rate of interest, but just the same, they'd be able to get loans after they wiped out the existing I think, debt. I think they would, but I think it would yeah. only be the, the sort of vultures that would be buying them and uh, yes, the, the rates they would be extracting would be exorbitant. It would be a lot of pain for the country, there's no doubt. I mean, there's no, there's no happy ending to that. Well, that's going to happen one way or the other. Exactly. Uh, that's exactly They're going right. to go through pain and the only question is how long is it going to last? How, de how deep is the will of what is the magnitude of the pain and what is the duration? Those are the two questions, I suppose. Let's take a break for some commercials. I'm Alfred Addis here with James Corbett from the CorbettReport.com. We'll be back in a moment. Stay tuned. Aspirin mistake. Aspirin was discovered by mistake during World War II and suppresses your immune system and prevents blood clotting. 
Don't expose your body to risk when you can use a natural inflammation and pain reliever called Extra Strength Pain Relief by Apothecary Herbs. Discover the power this formula has with Salicin to enter the system in 60 seconds to work hard and relieve pain for 12 hours. Whether it's arthritis, sports injury, or flu, you can relieve aches, pain, and swelling with our Extra Strength Pain Relief Formula. Call Apothecary Herbs now, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it. Nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. Hi, folks. I'm Alfred Adusk here with James Corbett from the Corbett Report on Financial Survival. And James said he was a little bit concerned sometimes about the questions I might ask. I've got one here that you may not want to answer. And I can understand that, and I don't object. If you'd rather just duck this question, that's fine. But here's an article from Newsmax, and it says, Americans living abroad set record for giving up citizenship. Now, you've lived in Japan for at least 10 years, if I understand correctly. That is correct. It's it's none of my business as to whether you have yourself expatriated or if you've considered it or you've rejected the idea. And if you don't want to talk about it, that's fine with me. I'm not really interested in this. I mean, it may be interesting if you want to respond to it. But I'm interested. You're sitting out there. You must know other American expatriates. What do you think about the idea of expatriation? Well, I, I am perfectly happy to talk about it in my own case. I am uh, officially a Canadian citizen. At least that's what it says on my passport. So there you okay. go. Um, and I haven't given up my Canadian citizenship because uh, Japanese citizenship is not easy to come by. No, <laughs> I, if I were interested in it. So. Yeah. But yes, um, but there... I thought you were a native of the United States. I thought you were a native of the I am US not. Man. I am Canadian. I'm sorry. Or, uh, that was my mistake then. All right. A loyal subject of the Queen at the end of the All day, right. or so she would like to believe. But... Uh, This is uh, interesting because the American example is particularly uh, egregious with the IRS claiming uh, that it has the right to to claim uh, a portion of your income anywhere in the world earned, you know, no matter where you're resident, which Mm -hmm. is which is quite unique. There aren't a lot of countries that do that. And Canada and Japan have uh, reciprocal tax arrangements so that you can't double pay. Basically, you're not double taxed. 
So, uh, so it, it, the IRS is particularly unusual like that. And certainly I know a lot of Americans over here that have to deal with that. And uh, the, uh, some people have been quite frustrated by the fact that they're expected to pay tax uh, twice, basically. Um, so I, I certainly understand that. And it's interesting. I've been watching this for several years now. And it seems, I, I think, every single year since 2009 or 2010, I've seen a story come out say this is the year more, more Americans gave up their citizenship than any sure. year previous. And it seems every single year that's, that's happening. So there's a, a growing trend toward that. And I certainly understand it because, as I say, the IRS uh, is really it has its claws everywhere and is working and has been working for some time to construct behind the scenes a web that makes it impossible for um, anyone to to really evade the clutches of the IRS, as people have done in the past. And even the, the, the coveted Swiss banking secrecy and all of that has been undermined in recent years by agreements that basically mean that the IRS even has its uh, its its eyes and ears in Switzerland now in the Swiss banks uh, banking system. And this is all being formalized now in the OECD rules that or the, the, the OECD is trying to put something together to to make this kind of international web. Of course, the idea is to catch these corporate tax evaders like the Apples and Microsofts or whatever. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. But uh, oh, oh, just happens to be, by the way, yes, we can also peer into your personal bank account and get all your personal banking details anywhere in the world. So uh, I understand why more people are doing this than ever before. But it's it's still, I mean, a fairly drastic measure for a lot of people. And Interestingly, some people have some problems with this process. People might, may or may not have heard of Roger Veer. I've had him on uh, the Corbett Report before. Uh, basically, he's a, a Bitcoin proponent, and he's, uh, he lives out in Japan and has for a number of years. I'm not sure how long, but he was uh, originally American. Uh, he gave up his citizenship and his passport, I believe, last year and uh, replaced it with a uh, St. Kitts passport i believe okay um, and and so he was attempting to go uh travel to the united states for a bitcoin conference uh and he was denied a visa to enter the united states because uh well i mean the story is actually quite ridiculous and they were they were claiming he didn't have proof of uh of residence in the place that he he has the passport or whatever and they literally wouldn't physically accept his proof he was trying to hand it to them, and they wouldn't accept it. It's a crazy story, but that's just one story among the uh, thousands and thousands of people now that are uh, in similar situations, giving up their, their U.S. citizenship to deal with the, the, the ridiculous taxation issues. And uh, I think this is only going to increase from, from here on in. You know, this you raise an interesting point. I've listened to people talk about American citizens are taxed anywhere in the world. All right, and there, and that is one of the primary motives that's causing them to relinquish their U.S. citizenship so they can live in Costa Rica, for example, and not be taxed by the government of the United States as well as the government of Costa Rica. That's all they're looking for. They're not just talking about dodging taxes or paying no taxes. They're saying, look, I don't want to pay taxes in two places. But that's the only way I've looked at this in the past. But what you're saying is that and bringing to my attention, and thought about it before, it's not just about the individuals. It's about the corporations that are allegedly locating their headquarters, their their finances, whatever, overseas. Multinational corporations, really, but if they are originally incorporated in the United States, are they also subject to being taxed by the United States government, even though they're located in Japan, for example? 
Well, that's a very good question. And I think it just depends on how good your uh, accountants and lawyers are. And obviously, the big corporations have the best in the world. So they know how mm-hmm. to do that, how to play this game. Um, if you have, I mean, I, I'm not going to get into the, the particularities of this, because I certainly don't deal with this corporate tax accounting. But my understanding is, if you have these various branches in different countries, uh, what what of that is actually created or is is income that's generated by the 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 US based corporation and what isn't depends on where you keep the money and how it's moved between the various branches and things of that sort so that you can have uh like some corporations that get a lot of publicity obviously in the states you can have these massive corporations that basically don't pay any taxes on on any of their foreign earned uh revenue because it's all part of these foreign subsidiaries and, and what have you. And again, I think it's really just a question of having accountants and lawyers and, and uh, that know how to play the game effectively and probably have greased the skids with the right payoffs to the right uh, officials uh, that go along the way. So that's why I think the OECD initiative is uh, is disingenuous, to say the least. I mean, I'm sure there will be some corporations that end up you know, getting at least uh, wrist slapped through all of this and having to pay more in taxes. But I think my my understanding of this is that this goes more towards the individual, um, because I think that the, the ultimate point of this is the creation of the global tax framework, without which you couldn't even possibly imagine having anything resembling some sort of global governmental structure. You need to have the framework to be able to track everyone's finances everywhere in the world and to have this sharing of information between governments. That has to be the real groundwork, the the cornerstone of anything that would resemble a a global governmental entity. And can you imagine, I mean, from that cornerstone, you can build all sorts of things. I mean, imagine if they bring in some sort of, you know, the, 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 the United Nations carbon tax or whatever. Again, that, that sort of thing cannot be built unless you have that, that cornerstone laid of having the, the sort of global tax framework. And so I think that's really what this OECD initiative is about. I think that's what the IRS is trying to do with its Foreign Bank Secrecy Act and all of these other legislation that's being passed to basically make everything as transparent as possible to the government. When we talk about the New World Order and global government, it's a subject that everybody, a lot of people talk about. But who points to the source of it? Where does the New World Order, where is it headquartered right this moment? And where, what is the foundation for it? Which nation or nations are really pushing for the New World Order? And where I'm going with this is the United States. The central force behind the New World Order? Uh, I, I, that's a difficult question to answer because what do you mean by United States? I, I got an award no. for that one. I got an award for that one. I got a. Uh, uh, all right, now that time I actually did, uh, you know, stump you a little bit on that question. What I'm going well, I'm for is the IRS. We would think that the IRS, we we think the IRS is trying to get taxes from Americans any place on the globe just because the IRS is greedy for money. Well, yeah. But is it greedy for money or is it they're trying to establish, build a foundation for what the New World Order will take over? And if the IRS is ultimately working for the New World Order, where is the headquarters? Who are are the principals behind the New World Order? That's kind of the wrong the wrong way to frame the question because it's not aware. Um, we've been trained to think that the the, the, the new world order, the, the the head people, whatever, are 
in a certain place, in a certain country, and they operate from there in that country's interests or what have you. It isn't, it isn't about that at the end of the day. It's about certain families. It's about certain bloodlines even, um, I'm sure, at the very top of this, that ultimately I really don't think they care about anyone who isn't part of their little clique, um, whether they live in the same geographical area or not. So I don't think it is a where is this located. And I wouldn't say the United States is the headquarters of this new world order. It's certainly been the driving engine for military enforcement of and, and the creation of this financial infrastructure that, um, that, that will lay the, the groundwork for the next stage of global government. But I don't think, again, I mean, the ultimate end of this is global. So I don't think that we can locate it in a, a particular place. It involves the collusion. And I don't mean that in a sense that these people are all 100% on the same page. But generally speaking, the collusion of people um, in, in various structures and secret organizations and what have you in every country in the world. I mean, there are people who collaborate and collude in various forms everywhere, all over the world, and they're important in their different sections of the world. So that a uh, uh, Rong Yiren or whoever in China may be the most, some of the most important people in the, in the Chinese oligarchy, and they collaborate with the, the, the Kissingers and the Rockefellers in America, and they collaborate with the Rothschilds in Israel, and they collaborate with the, uh, the, the various groups and the round tables and what have you in England. And, and, and again, I don't think looking at the trying to see the one place or the one group that is doing this is the right way of seeing it. I think it has to come about through the collusion of people in, in all of these different places. Well, the question becomes, the United. well, for me, the United States seems to be working to, to implement, engineer, cause a new world order. They seem to be a servant. The government of the United States, from my perspective, seems to be serving that objective. But if the government of the United States is not itself a prime mover, then they're a subordinate and somebody's pulling their strings and they are working for. They're not, they're not the source of the New World Order per se, but they are a very important subordinate and they're taking orders from. And it implies that our government has been captured by forces of the New World Order. And is that an exaggeration? Is it a misstatement? Or is it just something like an idea whose time has come? Is that what we're dealing with with the New World Order? Is it, is it sinister? Someone's going to force this on us? Or are we you know, finally going to see global government? You know, that's a really good question and one that I, I, I would hope that the alt media would be raising more, more frequently because it gets to an important part of this, uh, this whole story, which is, is there such a thing as this wonderful, amazing, you know, benevolent government that used to exist, but it's been corrupted and taken over by these, the, the, you know, the New World Order crowd? <laughs> it's always been corrupted and taken over. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> ultimately. Been taken over have they always been taken over? Well, the way I would see it is that the, 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 the New World Order ideology, the globalist ideology, the idea that we have to all you know, unify under this global government, which is the ultimate end of this, is just an outgrowth, is just an extension of the seeds of the kernels of the idea that were contained in and of themselves in these national governments before, before them and in, in previous forms of government before them. I think it's a, it is a growth of that idea. And so I don't think returning to you know, the old... If there was some sort of, you know, pre pre NWO government, if we could just return back to that, everything would be fine again. I don't think that's that's right. I think we have to question the, the, the legitimacy of the system itself to actually get at the root of the problem. So it's not 
to me, it's not the corruption of something that was once pristine. It's just the, the, the growth of an ideology that, uh, that is just reaching a, a more and more elaborate form. Do you think the New World Order is essentially a done deal? Is it inevitable, or are there forces at work that are perhaps going to, you know, put a stick in their spokes and they're not going to pull it off? If it was inevitable, I wouldn't be here talking to you. Um, mm-hmm. But it is certainly an uphill battle to uh, to fight against it. Um, and it may just be a question that perhaps fighting against it can can postpone it. And even that might be worth something. I don't know. But at the end of the day, I think there has to be a chance, honestly, a real chance to to affect this. But it, it, the question becomes more uh, more pertinent, more to the point with every passing decade, because I think we we get to that point where we are truly technologically reaching the, the sort of levels of control that that wouldn't have been possible, imaginable. A, a half a century ago, say. I mean, we couldn't have imagined, really, the type of technological tyranny that could be implemented by a global government uh, 50 years ago, that, uh, as opposed to what could be implemented today. And I think that gives a certain urgency to this problem. And especially when we start talking about technologies like the transhumanist technologies and, and things that will start to, to be the brain chips and what have you that, again, sounded like science fiction fantasy half a, half a century ago, but are becoming more and more uh, a, 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 an imminent reality at this point. I think those te- types of technologies truly will decide this, this match. I mean, if you want to look at it as sort of the people versus the, the small clique who have who have been in power, who have always been in power. There's always been a small clique over top of most, the most people, but there's always been this, this sort of suggestion, well, we could fight them off, we could slough them off here and there. Not only that, that, there was the suggestion that it wasn't going to happen until Flash Gordon arrived and the Emperor Ming, and that right. would be in the next century or something like that. It's turned out it's happening in our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. We're out of time, James. I want to thank you All again right. for being on the program. I always look forward to it. And, uh, folks, thank you for tuning in. James and I will be back uh, next Thursday, barring the unforeseen. In the meantime, the good Lord bless you, me, Melody, Frank the producer, and James Corbett. Good night. I work all night, I work all day to pay the bills I have to pay. Ain't it sad? Still, there never seems to be a single penny left for me. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. 
sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU-band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149. $49.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System.
All right, good afternoon all. It is May 14th, 2015. It's Thursday. It is about, oh, almost nine minutes after 2 p.m. And that's all true where you're at. We are, in fact, live. You can call in 800-932-1980. 800 932 1980 do will get you on the show. You can also just go to com or com. Okay? And, uh... Find the chat link and go on in there. You can participate in the show or you can just, uh, you know, chat with the other people in there. You don't have to participate if you don't want to. You can also go, if you have uh, Yahoo Instant Messenger, you can look for the screen name AVRN Talk and get directly to me through that. Anyway, okay. So, there we have that. Well, let's get to things and stuff. Yes, my nose is clogged up, but I feel fine. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the rain. Anyway, Pelosi predicts GOP ruin on Obamacare. Yeah, House Democratic leader Nazi Pelosi predicted Wednesday that Republicans will rue the day if the Supreme Court buys their arguments and invalidates tax subsidies for millions of people under President Barack Obama's health care law. Rue the day. Democrats wrote that bill the way it is. Okay? Democrats wrote Obamacare. Democrats all voted for it because if you'll remember, the Democrats controlled the House and Senate when they passed that monstrosity. So Pelosi, you know, to to say anybody will, will rue the day, the Democrats ought to rue the day because they're the ones that wrote it that way. They're the ones that thought they'd write in a little uh, extortion mechanism into it, and it backfired on them. And now they want to blame somebody else. And that's really what happened. They wrote the law the way it is because they were trying to encourage states to start their own exchange and not use the uh, federal exchange. And the stick and carrot was, hey, if you get your own exchange, we've got all these subsidies for your people. If you don't, They don't get the subsidies. So, therefore, all these people will be pushing on the state people to, hey, we want our own exchange so we can get these subsidies. That was the whole plan. It backfired, but that was their plan. And now they're trying to say, oh, uh, well, that's not what we meant. That's not what we, uh, yeah, we wrote it that way, but that's not really what we meant. But it's exactly what they meant. It's what they said they meant. Until it backfired, and then it wasn't, oh, that's not what we meant. They are such liars, folks. When are you going to stop falling for it? What is wrong with Democrats? And I mean, 
you're walking up and down the street, Democrat, not the Nazi Pelosi rulers of the universe, Democrat. What is wrong with you people just because they're, I mean, really? Is this like this having a serial killer son that you go, well, really, he's a good boy and he's just misunderstood and I have to protect him no matter what, how many people he kills? Is that your idea about your Democratic Party or your Republican Party? It seems how people are. They don't care. Like, look at Hillary Clinton. I mean, honestly, this woman's been a serial criminal for 40 years, and yet people are out there going, oh, boy, won't it be great to have Hillary as president? (laughs) How could that be great? How could that even be good? How could that even be tolerable? Republicans have said they will try to ensure people don't lose insurance if the high court rules this summer against tech tax subsidies for health care coverage in certain states. Well, they haven't said how they do it. Well, they shouldn't do it at all. Let this thing die. Hey, you're losing all your insurance. Not that, hey, look, you know what? Do a redo. Just say, you know, okay, fine. Obama's care is over. Go buy your own insurance like you were before Obamacare. This has been a catastrophe. Such a ruling would present a major challenge to the GOP. Without a congressional fix, some 8 million people could lose subsidies, which help them pay for their health insurance. Help them? Without it, they couldn't afford their health insurance because what it is... What these subsidies are, folks, is corporate welfare. That's what it is. These insurance companies, when they make billions, tens of billions of dollars in profits, they get to keep them all and spread them out among their stockholders. Oh, but when there's a loss, oh, that's when the U.S. government has to step in and cover their losses. And then when they make money again, up, oh, that's right, the company gets to keep all that and spread it amount of, of its stockholders. That's corporate welfare. That's what these subsidies are because these insurance companies are charging more than the market can bear for their policies. You get that? In a free economy... You tell people, well, you can get health insurance for only $800 a month. (laughs) Well, sorry, I don't have $800 a month to spend on health insurance. So, no. No sale. Well, would you believe $400 a month? $300 a month? $200 a month? $200 a month. We've got a a buyer here at $200 a month. That's how it would go on a free market. But no, 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 These guys just say, oh, no, it's $800 a month. But uh, don't worry, you only have to pay 50 or 100 or depending on how much you make, because Uncle Slam will pick up the rest. They're overcharging, they're gouging, they're collecting corporate welfare. That's what the insurance companies are actually doing. And that's what they've always done. They're now going to... Uh, 
they're now going to then go out and say, we're going to take subsidies away from people who have health care, Pelosi said in an interview. They're now going to then go out? They who? No, I don't think so. Oh, really? You don't think so? The California, this is the woman that told you that, uh, well, you'll get to see what's in it after you vote yes on it. The California Democrat, who was House Speaker when the health bill became law in 2010 and was a major force behind its passage, insisted that the law was ironclad constitutionally and would not be overturned. I don't think it's going to happen, so it's no use speculating on what I don't think is going to happen. But it would be bad news for them. I would be really bad news for them, she said of Republicans. Well, not if they spin it the, the way it ought to be spun, which is, this is your doing. Okay? Obamacare, I mean, honestly, we have to look just like, hey, you know, just like the, uh, you know, the Patriot Act. We have to blame the Republicans for that. That was them. But Obamacare, we have to blame the Democratic Party. They did this. And when it fails because it was written badly... And one of their little schemes to force people to do things they don't want to do backfired in their face. Uh, Oh, well. You can't just go and blame somebody else who had nothing to do with it. Nearly 8 million people could lose up to $24 billion a year in health insurance subsidies. Are you getting that? $24 billion a year in health insurance company welfare? And and honestly, people complain about giving people food stamps? Really? Is that right? Oh, we're spending way too much money feeding the poor. Let's take that away so we can give the insurance companies more billions. $24 billion a year. Uh, King versus Burwell, which focuses on the literal wording of the compact, uh, complex law. What a what 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 a bunch of politicides here, man! Are you kidding me? Actually paying attention to the literal words in a law? How dare they? <laughs> Opponents say it only allows subsidies in states that set up their own insurance exchanges. Only 13 states and Washington, D.C. are running their own online insurance markets. Other states have robbed lots of money and failed to provide them and uh, rely on the federal marketplace. And tax subsidies in those marketplaces would be threatened if the court rules against the administration. Pelosi said she knew the law well, that opponents are relying on a phrase taken out of context. Oh, did you misspeak? See, I read it, and it wasn't taken out of context. As a matter of fact, if you go back to the discussions they had about what they wrote, supposedly, they did it 
in order to force the states to open their own exchanges. This was a plan. They did this on purpose. It wasn't an accident. Oops, an oversight is taken out of context. Nazi Pelosi is a bald-faced liar. Okay? That's the only thing you can... Well, no, it's not the only thing you can call her. But it's one of the... It's an accurate thing to call her. She is a straight-up liar. There's no other nice way to put it. She is a straight-up liar. Well, she's in a house of liars, but she happens to be the one standing up lying right now. Um, if Republicans who oppose the law get the Supreme Court ruling they want, the onus would be on the GOP-led Congress to come up with a fix. Why should the GOP have to come up with a fix for a program that has failed and they never voted yes on in the first place. They had absolutely no say in it. They did vote against it, and it passed anyway because they were in the minority. Why should they be responsible to fix this monstrosity? Kill it! Put it in the dirt and say, this was a big, unconstitutional, illegal mistake. It's not all clear how they could do that in a way acceptable to the Obama administration and politically palatable to GOP voters heading into a presidential election year. Who the hell cares what the administration wants? You know what? The Republicans have a majority in the House and Senate. They need to get together and just tell President Dictator Obama, you know what, you don't like it too bad. You're a lame duck, and you're getting nothing. As a matter of fact, you're not going to get fast track, and you're not going to get your toilet paper uh, agreement with the Pacific Rim so you can destroy the American people some more. That's what they should be doing. But, you know, are they? Well, gee, who knows? I mean, look at this, okay? I know I go there, and I like it to a certain degree, but I, I've been going there a lot less than I used to. And I'm talking about the Drudge Report. Because, I mean, here we have this fast track and the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership fixing to really screw over America real bad. And what's the headline at the Drudge Report? Brady appeals small balls. Oh, isn't that catchy? Oh, how funny. Who who really cares? Oh, I'm sure there's some fanatics that care. Some people that are like, oh, yes, this really matters whether the Patriots win the Super Bowl or Brady plays or they even have a season. Who really cares? I mean... Who who really cares? Does it does it change your life? I suppose if you put down a real big bet and it went the right way for you on one of the games, it could change your life. But other than that, does it really matter in your life whether Brady plays or not? Who cares? I tell you what, this Pacific uh, Partnership is going to have a lot more impact on your life than Brady ever will, or the Patriots, or the NFL. But yet. This is the big headline. And I don't see anything about the the TPP. 
Nope. Nope. Nothing. Well, let's see. The uh, train crash in Philadelphia. Death tolls up to eight. And they say they have accounted for everybody. And, uh, you know. And uh, I think Hillary Clinton must have been uh, driving that train. Oh, yeah. Because this uh, homosexual, which, of course, you know, they're not they're not playing that up. They're not saying much about that. But this homosexual that was the engineer of that train. Yeah, uh, let's see. Eight people dead, uh, hurtling at 106 miles an hour before it ran off the rails. Along a, Now, they say a sharp curve. This wasn't really a sharp curve. It was a curve, and the speed limit was 50 miles an hour, and he's going 106. Okay, so that could be a problem, right? Anyway. Uh, uh, now, they're saying the engineer, whose name was not released, it, well, it's been released... Refused to give a statement to law enforcement and left a police precinct with a lawyer. Hmm. Oh, yes, they want to give him a day or two to recover from the shock of the accident. You mean to get his lies straight? Give him a day or two to get his lies straight? You know what? Then, okay, that's that's nice. You know, that's really nice. Federal accident investigators want to talk to him, but we'll give him a day or two to recover from the shock of the accident. Yeah, okay, I'm going to remember that next time uh, if I'm ever in an accident in a car and the cop comes up and says, okay, what happened? Well, you know what, officer? Why don't you be a nice guy and give me the same courtesy they gave the homo engineer that killed eight people uh, and uh, give me a day or two to, you know, Get over the shock of all this, and then I'll come in and talk to you. you how do you think that would go over? I, I mean, this is... You know, this... <laughs> man. Anyway, let's see. Uh, Robert Gogan, Boston's attorney. Oh, man. This is where Hillary Clinton, the, the Hillary Clinton clone man, arrives. Okay? Yeah, his attorney told ABC News his client has no recollection of the crash. I don't recall. Crash? What crash? I don't recall. I just don't remember. Yeah, he remembers driving the train. He remembers going to that area generally, but has no, has absolutely no recollection of the incident or anything unusual. I asked him if he had any medical issues. He told ABC News. He said he had none. He's on no medications. He has no health issues to speak of and just has no explanation. Oh, really? Well, maybe it's some homo disease that we're not allowed to talk about, huh? Oh, that's not a health issue. The television was on uh, in the police district. 
And the constant count and recounting of the incident was being broadcast in his face all morning, and he was distraught. He suffered a concussion. Um, let's see here. I'm trying to get to the part where, you know, they say something. But I don't see anything yet, and this thing goes on and on and on. Well, it's a bad deal. I know that. And I don't trust this guy at all. For one, he's a homo. And for two, I don't recall. Really, has he been listening to this show? Because, you know, that's, hey, it works for Hillary Clinton. Now it's working for this guy. So, you know, it seems that Homosexual Democrats just run around doing bad things, killing people, and then it's, uh, oh, free pass, because I don't remember. Yeah, I don't recall. I have no recollection of that. Okay, great. You know, great. Try that next time, folks, and, and cite this and say, wait a minute now. Wait a minute. If he can say, I don't remember, and everything's fine, you don't remember, okay, that's fine. Well, you don't have to remember, because here's the deal. You were driving a train at 106 miles an hour in a 50-mile-an-hour zone. You crashed a train and killed eight friggin' people. You're going to jail. How's that sound? Maybe your memory will come back there. You'll have plenty of time to sit and think about it. You know, if this train was going at a normal speed and everything was normal and the and, and say the tracks just got, you know, you know, the tracks went bad and the thing fell off the tracks. Okay, well, that you know, hey, this isn't your fault if that happens, if it's a mechanical failure. But 106 miles an hour? Wait a minute. That's pretty fast. This, and this is, this is like right in the middle of Philadelphia. Well, I I don't know, man, but uh, I'm with the mayor on this one that says uh, this is obviously negligence, man. Obviously, yeah, 106 miles an hour through town. I mean, well, think of the city bus driver. You know, flying through town at 106 miles an hour and then slams on the brakes and kills eight people. My, my, my. I think he'd be in trouble. Well, we'll see what ends up happening with this. But you know what? I honestly have a suspicion that because he's a homo, that he is going to be protected. He is going to be shielded. And they're already doing it. Okay? They're already doing it. Oh, yeah, let's give him a few days to get over the shock. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, why don't we do that? Let's take a break. We'll be back in a bit. This 
that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific.
countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System. An important message from Donald Trump and Americans for Limited Government. While I'm a Republican, right now some in the Republican Party are working overtime to hand more power to President Obama. These same people are turning their backs on the American workers and businesses. It's unbelievable. I learned a long time ago, a bad deal is far worse than no deal at all. And the Obama Trans-Pacific Partnership and Fast Track are a bad, bad deal. For American businesses, for workers, for taxpayers, it's a huge set of handouts for a few insiders that don't even care about our great, great America. Congress has to stand up and defeat this raw power grab. With the dismal Obama track record, why should a Republican Congress give him more power and gut the Constitution to do it? It's just crazy. Tell your congressman and senator, vote no on Fast Track. Take action at Obamatrade.com. Obamatrade.com.
Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is May 14, 2015. It's Thursday, about 2.41 and a half. If that's all true, then uh, we're live. You can call in 800-932-1980. Or go to the chat room. You know, uh, speaking of the chat room, there was something uh, said in there, and I, I never thought about it, but some of you may be under the mistaken presumption that Donald Trump or some organization is paying me to run that ad. And they are not. Nobody is paying me to run that ad. I listen to that ad, and I agree with that ad. And I'm playing it as a public service for free. Okay? And you better pay attention to it. Now you might not like Donald Trump. His voice just grates on me. I, you know, I don't trust. Why would I trust the guy? Are you kidding me? And his voice is like ah, difficult to listen to. But listen to what the ad is saying. It's true. Listen, you didn't listen when uh, you know Ross Perot and some of you didn't like him either. Oh, he's a billionaire. Oh, he made all his money off of uh, government contracts. Oh, he's got funny-looking ears, and he's too short anyway. And he's from Texas, and somebody, you know, we don't like that either. So, you know, fine. I don't care. It ain't about Donald Trump. It's about what he said. What he said in that ad is true. And you better pay attention if you want to have any semblance of an economy left in this country. Or, hey, do nothing again like you've always done nothing, and we'll just get what we've been getting, and then sooner or later you'll be dragged off to a Walmart. Ah, what does he mean by that? Well, I've got a story. I've got a story (laughs) about that. And no apologies necessary. You know, hey, it's a reasonable assumption that, hey, you're running ads, somebody's paying you to run the ads. That's a reasonable assumption. I'm just, uh, you know, letting you know, in this case, that's not true. And I've run other ads, you know, similar to this. If somebody does a good ad about a, a, you know, about a subject that needs people to pay attention, I'll run it. And this is, boy, when he says this is a bad deal, he ain't kidding. This is a real bad, bad, bad deal. But, anyway... So there you have it. There it is. And, uh, oh, hey, 
stumped the room. Took him a little while, but uh, he actually got the first song, which I was a little surprised at. But uh, it was Nick Lowe, Cracking Up. I like that song. So they got that. Uh, But actually, it it is the guy who wrote I Knew the Bride, but actually the other guy... uh, I guess Nick Lowe sang that, too, but the other guy in Rockpile actually sang that. I forget his name. Uh, anyway, it'll come to me. And I'm looking here, and I don't think uh, uh, nobody got the second one, which is Rambling on My Mind, which has been covered really quite well by a couple of other people that I'll probably pay, play sometime in the future. But this is the original by Robert Johnson. So, we tie. All right, let's see here. Oh, by the way, what's going on in Washington, you know, as in D.C., with the uh, Trans-Pacific Pact or partnership isn't even about the actual passing of the agreement or any details of the agreement. All they're talking about right now is fast tracking it, which, you know, there is really, there's no, uh, I, I haven't seen anything in the constitution that allows fast track anything. You know, there's supposed to be procedures, parliamentary procedures that these people go through. Things go through committee. If they get out of the committee, they're debated in the committee. If they get out of the committee, they're debated by the full Senate. And then, you know, the public watches, and then they eventually decide. That's the way it's supposed to be done. And then they decide, oh, we have something called Fast Track. Where, uh, oh... Yeah, you don't get to have committee. You don't get to have a debate on the floor. All you get is an opportunity to vote yes or no. That's it? Wow. Yeah, you'll find out what's in it after uh, you vote yes on it. Man, oh man, oh man. Uh, <laughs> you know, look, I don't know, you know, if we can stop this. You know, I, I tried with NAFTA and GATT and failed. So I, I don't know if we can stop this because there are so many powerful, rich people that want this because they will benefit. You will lose, folks. Your children will lose. You thought you wanted GMO labeling? If this passes, you can forget about it. Oh, you went to school to be what? An IT professional? You went to school to be, I don't know, a vice president at a bank? You went to school for one of these, you know, good-paying jobs? You got yourself a nice, big, you know, 
student loan debt. Well, you can forget about having any of those jobs. You want to know why? Because another thing about the TPP is the fact that corporations will be deciding how many H-1B visas they need. In other words, now the government says, okay, uh, we're going to make this many available this year. You know, and when they're gone, they're gone. Then nobody else comes in. That's it. Well, what they want to do in this is say, well, when a corporation says, hey, I've got jobs here that I want to fill with uh, foreigners, so I need, uh, you know, I need 50,000 H-1B visas, the government prints them out and says, here they are. Only based on a corporation saying, I need them. Okay, I need them. Why do you need them? Well, because I got 50,000 decently paid United States born, raised, and educated employees that uh, I can replace for less than half with foreign uh, you know, people. So they're fired, and these people, I need these other people. Because, see, my stockholders want to get their little dividends, so I've got to keep making money somehow. This is, you like that idea? Because that's what's going to go on. It's not just your shovel operators, you know, working minimum wage jobs that are going to be replaced from, uh, you know, by troglodytes down in, uh, you know, Central America. That's not it. That's not all. You see, you allowed that to happen, driving around in your nice little cars and stuff. You're, oh, I buy a new car every two years because I'm pulling down 60, 70, 80, 90,000 a year. Woohoo for me. Yeah, screw that homeless guy. Screw that minimum wage guy. Screw all those people. Who the hell cares? I want to have my grass cut cheap, and Mexicans can cut it cheaper, so I don't care. Well, good, because it's coming to you. You're not going to have that sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollar job anymore because it's going to go to some foreigner that will do it for twenty or thirty thousand a year or less, and you're going to be out on the street sucking wind just like the minimum wage guy. And we're all supposed to, I'm sure, feel real bad for you. This is what's happened, folks. You let it happen to other people. You let it happen to other people, you're opening it up to happen to you. Now, somebody in the chat room just said, uh, just wait till semi-trucks start driving themselves. Lost lots of jobs there. Well, that's true. But, So many truck driving jobs have been lost to foreigners already. I'm telling you, man, the wages of truck drivers, I I remember back, I don't know, in the 80s, driving a truck was a decent, you know, paying job. I mean, still, look, you know, you had to be away from your family you had long hours, you were out on the road, stuck in a truck. I mean, it's not a glamorous, uh, you know, like a Hollywood movie. Well, the, you know, the cowboy truck drivers. But truck drivers did t- 
tend to be a little more independent thinkers, and, uh, you know, they spend a lot of time by themselves or talking on the radio, and it's a tough job, and they were paid well for it. Not so much anymore. Mm-mm. Not so much anymore. And there are some that are still making all right, but they, from what I've seen, they have to work a lot harder now. they got to drive a lot longer, and the rules... Oh, man, the rules are staggering. Uh, some of you out there used to listen to Matt Smith on uh, on AVR here. Uh, he had a show, and I was just talking to Matt the other day, and his company has gone completely now with the electronic logs. Nightmare. Nightmare. There's no more, you know, fudging the logbook anymore. Now you're being tracked. Okay? Now you're being tracked, traced, kept an eye on every second you're in that truck. They can tell how fast you're going. They can tell you everything about what you're doing. Matter of fact, so you end up, your time runs out, and you're 10 miles from your house. And you've got to take a break. Well, wouldn't it be nice to just drive that 10 miles to your house, take a shower in your own shower, go get your sleep in your own bed, and then get back in that truck and get back on the road? Wouldn't that be nice? And, I mean, you're only 10 miles away, but guess what? Back in the day, when they had... Paper logs, you could fudge 10 miles and get over there and do that. But now, nope. Got to sleep in the back of your truck, stay away from your house, stay away from your family, because you are being watched. And it's not just the inconvenience to the driver. Let's just say, hey, uh, you know, I got to get this load here. And, uh, you know, the dispatchers didn't, didn't do it right. They did the paper thing, not the real road thing, which this is another way they screw drivers, okay? They do mileage from zip code to zip code. They don't do mileage from location to location, so you're always getting shortchanged, okay? Oh, it, it goes on and on, folks. And the roads are full of foreigners driving semis. Why? Because they'll drive for less. Yeah. So, yeah, trucks will be out there driving themselves and, uh, you know, mowing people down. And who's going to be held responsible then? The company? Really? Oh, so what? They pay a fine and uh, what? You know, your people are still dead, but they paid a fine. It's like the Wall Street bankers, the library rate schemes. These are felonies. And did anybody go to jail? No, no, no. They just paid, oh, billions of dollars in fines. They made trillions of dollars in profits, so they paid billions of dollars in fines. 
but nobody got any restitution. The government got the money from Wall Street like a payoff to not put anybody in jail, to not demand restitution. And do you want to know who covered up anybody getting any restitution in New York, in Brooklyn? I'll tell you, head of the lynch mob. That's right, Loretta Lynch. Yeah, she covered up for Wall Street bankers so they never had to pay any restitution. Because she didn't release the information to the victims. That's the lynch mob, formerly known as the Justice Department. Sweet, huh? Well, here's a little lesson in, duh. So a guy puts a uh, an ad in Craigslist, says he wants a gal uh, who's submissive. Okay, so some chick out there answers the ad, they get to talking, and, you know, arrange to meet. So far, so good, folks. You know, because people say, oh my God, that's crazy to ever meet anybody you met on the internet. Really? Is that is that any more crazier than going into an alcohol-infested room? And talking to the first drunk you find? Really? (laughs) Really, the internet's worse than that, huh? I don't think so, okay? It's all dangerous, folks. Anytime you're around other people is dangerous, so just keep that in mind. But, okay, so, so far, so good. They're going to meet, you know, and uh, here's where things go wrong. Where are they going to meet? Hey, let's meet in a secluded rural area. Okay, first bad mistake. If you're going to meet somebody for the first time, I don't care if you met them on the internet or met them on the train or met them anywhere. I don't care. Your first date shouldn't be in a secluded rural area. Okay? It should be in a public place. All right, now, these guys in this in this crazy article here, they said, uh, Kaiser said, anyone who's meeting in person with someone they met on the Internet, and they, of course, just leave it at the Internet, but I'm telling you, <laughs> anytime you meet a, a someone they met for the first time, anywhere, it doesn't matter where, you should always do so in a safe public place. And then they say, such as a police station. Oh, Really? If a person doesn't want to meet in a public place, that should be your first red flag that there's nothing good to come of this. Well, you know what? I don't care who you are. You want to meet me at the police station? Deals off, Bubba, or Bubbette, whoever the heck you are. I don't care who you are. I'm not meeting anybody at the police station unless there's a warrant involved. That is insane. Do you see the stupidity that they pass on to people? And and, and there's people out there actually buying that? There's dimwits raising children that are actually going to tell their kids, yeah, okay, if you ever want to go on a date with somebody you've never met before, then let your first date be at the police station. Yeah, sure. Why not a restaurant or something? Who the hell meets at a police station anyway except the police? Well, anyway, I got to go. Well, I'll be back again tonight. We got a full day coming up, so don't go anywhere. And as always, thanks for listening.
Are you concerned about prescription drug dependency to stay healthy? Are you worried that the cost and availability of your medications may put your health at risk? Perhaps it's time you consider a natural, safe, and effective way to deal with your health problems. If only you knew where to start. Start right here. Tune in to Herb Talk Live with herbalist Wendy Wilson every Tuesday and Thursday evening, 7 p.m. on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, where your healthcare options just became endless. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for one forty. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System.
Messiah's Branch has a mission church in Wichita, Kansas that helps the victims of this banker's economy, the American people, your neighbors. The mission is the last hope for so many Americans. We need your help to lift up the poorest of the poor. These are men, women, and children who once had homes, now in the street. They all need what you need. First aid, beds, food, clothing, and so on. You can send a monetary gift or a box of necessities to 230 West 4th Street, Florence, Kansas, 66851. Or donate online by going to wichitahomeless.com. Or simply call 316-619-4886. 619-4886. Welcome to the Messiah's Branch Broadcast, a one-hour prophecy program on the American Voice Radio Network. Featuring Pastor Dan of the Messiah's Branch Ministry. And now, here's Pastor Dan. Welcome to Mission Watch, another Messiah's Branch National Satellite Radio Program. We are broadcasting from the Flint Hills of Kansas, and we're on the American Voice Radio Network. Today's date is May 7, 2015. With Mission Watch Live, we are warning the world as it happens. If you need help with anything after this program, please call me. If you need prayer, you can call me for that also. If you get the machine, please leave your name, your number, your prayer request, and or message. The phone number, of course, is 620-878-4682. 620-878-4682. And an emergency, my cell phone number is 316-619-4886. You can always find updates with the breaking news, our ministry, radio program archives, and our mailing address at our blog, which is very simply prophecyhour.com. Now, when you go over there, a lot of you people are listening on your smartphones. Um, even if it is live, you go over there. When you hit prophecyhour.com, there's a link right there. It says smartphones go here. That is for radio program archives, and so that also that you can download them or just play them or whatever. Okay, anyway, our program archives, of course, can be found also at prophecyhour.com and branch.podomatic.com. That's where that link takes you. Both of these sites are smartphone-friendly. In fact, at branch.podomatic.com, there's a, a way to get an Apple or an Android app for your phone if you choose to do it that way. But you can listen to programs without downloading anything but the program, or you can just hit play and listen. So... As you listen up, I challenge you to share the radio programs with at least two or three other people. Now we'll have a prayer and we'll bring on tonight's guest. 
Dear Heavenly Father, in Yeshua Hamashiach's name I pray. Father, I pray that radio tonight goes according to your will and not my will, nor my guest will necessarily. Just your will, Father, and please give everybody out there ears in which to hear the truth. Well, amen and amen. Our guest tonight is Fritz Zimmerman. He's the author of what I call a series of books um, called the Nephilim Chronicles. Fritz is an unaffiliated scholar and spent 13 years in both academic pursuits and field work in search of oranges and ruins of the Hopewell, Hopewell Mound Builders. The purpose of his research was to reveal for the first time the extent of the ancient prehistoric ruins in the Ohio Valley and make this information available to anyone who wishes to explore the ruins of the mysterious people known as the Hopewell uh, Mound Builders. Uh, he has some really amazing things online, but let's bring him on and talk to him. Welcome, Fritz. Are you there with me? Yeah, I um, good to be with you tonight, Pastor. Well, I'm really glad to, to have you on with me, and you know, I'm I've been looking through. I always try to refresh myself just before radio, you know, and I've been going through these two different sites that uh, uh, of yours and looking at all these pictures and things, and I'm I'm just truly amazed. I didn't know there was that much evidence out there of these Nephilim. Um, yeah, the uh, Nephilim, or we're talking more specifically about the ancient giant race that the Bible talks about in Genesis 6-4. And yeah. those people moved from the biblical lands to England and eventually into the Ohio Valley. So my book provides evidence of those people, both uh, skeletal remains, um, the type of uh, earthworks that they built, the type of mounds that they built, and then show similarities uh, across the globe in three specific regions, biblical lands, England, and the Ohio Valley. Yes, amen. Um, for the people, um, you know, expound a little bit more on Genesis 6. I know I've said it in other programs, but let them know what went on in Genesis 6 and what we're talking about, basically. Well, Genesis 6-4, it says, there were giants in those days and also after that. And when the sons of God saw the daughters of men, giants were born. And these would be mighty men, men of renown. And it mentions them there, but the accounted giant race in the Bible were called the Amorites. Right. And we see them... Different places in the Bible, Abraham um, had some intercourse with them. Um, they were megalithic builders, mean stone circles and pillars of stone. Um, the early people in the Bible, like Moses and Jacob, of course, you know, you read that in the Bible where they were erecting these pillars. Now, that doesn't mean that they were worshiping the same gods as the Amorites. They were not. But they were using some of the same icons and using some of those same megalithic uh, monuments in the early days of uh, the Bible. So we're talking around 1400 B.C. in that era. So those things, that cultural belief, of course, in the Bible, it says um, about the Amorites, uh, uh, I think it's Ezekiel, uh, 1613 is what that was when it says um, of the uh, Jewish people, the birth and thy nativity is the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite, thy mother was a Hittite. And so there's certainly some 
close right. ties biblically between these two people. Yes, amen. Um, I, my belief is, you know, they they basically were infested throughout the, you know, um, well, that was what the, the father had the people, had the Israelites run them out and kill them when they moved into the land, didn't they? Um, I'm sorry, I didn't catch all that. Can you repeat that last? Well, please? my point was is is that when they, as they went in towards the uh, the promised land, they had to uh, fight these people and get rid of them. Oh yeah, they uh, they killed them all. Um, that was Og, um, who they said was um, leading there. So when Moses went in, well, Moses didn't, but Joshua went in. Yeah, he took them out, but. You know, historically, by then, most of the Amorites had left. Right. Their monuments were all there, but them as being the people that they were, say, in 1700 B.C. when they controlled Babylon, most of them had left. They were feeling pressure from the Egyptians and and from the south. Um, They were being uh, subjugated by the Hittites to the north. So... The Israelites actually kind of came in in a vacuum of mm-hmm. them leaving. So while the story is, you know, that they pushed them out, there was really only a remnant that was left. And most of them had already pushed on, many of them ending up in uh, England, where we find the hinges and the stone circles, and we find the burial mounds. And we find a lot of large skeletons being found in those mounds in England, with the same skull type that we found with the Amorites that they had found in Israel um, at the gates of Damascus was one find, and then those same skull types we find in the uh, mounds of England, and then that repeats itself in the Ohio Valley, which is a unique type of head, one of them being called Daenerys, so they have this flat back of the head. Mm -hmm. So some unique skull types show up in all three of these spots. Of course, the exciting thing is that we can tie biblical characters in North America and in the Ohio Valley specifically. Yeah, amen. Um, Backing up a little bit, you know, I I was going to, when you mentioned, you know, in Genesis 6, it says sons of God, um, you know, I have a a Jewish literal translation, and that just, it doesn't say sons of God, it just says divine beings. Um, So these were offspring, um, were they not then crossbreed from between human beings and fallen angels? Originally, he, he, uh, I, you know, I take more of a scientific. Okay, view of well, that, we, of we can go that direction. Um, I mean, because there's some different things. I mean, there's some people that believe, and they take you know the two different Eves that show up. Um, they bring in Lilith as possibly as the mother of the giants. Um, mm-hmm. It was, it was too races that were mixing, and these people left a pretty indelible mark on, you know, the early biblical people who were there and the early writers, but they looked so different, and when we're, you know, if we read that, yeah, we can read Fallen Angels, but I think the real important thing to get out of that is that we had a mix of two different people to kind of create this abomination of people. Now, what this was, was that the last remnants of Neanderthal was mixing with 
these Cro-Magnon, who were naturally tall anyway, um, pieces right. of them being up around seven foot. So they mix, and so you kind of had this Cro-Magnon Neanderthal hybrid with bulging eyebrows and sloped skulls and massive jaws. And this is the exact same type of skull type that we find in numbers in right. all three of these regions. So they are this abomination. They're an abomination of a race of people. And so when the Bible talks to them as being this abomination, scientifically, we know that's, that's what right. we're talking about. And so I provide that evidence in the book. It's like, well, don't actually read this literally as fallen angels, but do come out and say what we have here are people that are an abomination. They look, they're huge, they're seven, they're eight foot tall. They don't look like anyone. Some of them have double rows of teeth. And, yeah, they would have been very striking yeah. characters uh, to have seen. Yeah, a, a couple of things. Absolutely. I, I, I don't, uh, I think it's a very good approach to come across with that because, you know, we need this kind of evidence out there to make our arguments, you know, because if we always refer to the spiritual things or the things that people, you know, um, in the secular world, won't, you know what I mean? They go, oh, well, they say that's this, then, you know, it makes it harder for us. As far as being abominations, you know, right out, it laid right out in Genesis that everything was supposed to be after it. Own kind, and this clearly wasn't after its own kind, was it? No, no, and you're right. Um, I think there's a lot of things in the Bible that you can't take them literally. You have to read the, uh, between the lines and say, like, well, what are they really saying? What is the uh, scientific or historical basis that we can put on this? And, um, you know, one thing is, you know, most scientists are just so bewildered about the megalithic people. What did the standing stones mean? What did stone circles, what was all that? And we find those, all those things being used by um, people in the early stages of the Bible when it starts chronicling some of the life, like Jacob and, and Moses, where they're building these stone heaps and pillars. And um, in one case, God commands... I think it's Jake. It says, build me an altar of stone, let no uh, tool touch it, lest he ruin it. So, I mean, here's this organic temple or this organic altar that, you know, that they they were constructing. And, right. um, you know, those were the early churches. You know, that's, that's how they worship. And most people don't realize that in the Transjordan, along the Jordan River, there were thousands of these dolmens, or dolmen is just kind of two pieces of stone with one on top, but it was basically a burial mound because mm -hmm. it was capped with earth. And we had stone circles and graded ways of stone, and we had all these burial mounds that uh, there's just all this these megalithic remains over in those biblical lands. And somehow that just never seems to uh, make its way in any kind of uh, religious literature, but... Uh, uh, it's pretty impressive over there. Well, that's that's what fascinates me about the whole, you know, that's why I said I, I, I was amazed at, you know, I mean, I'm looking at picture after picture and headline after headline um, of these, and, and we'll let you give your, your websites in a little while. But anyway, 
um, I was just really amazed at just really how much uh, uh, was out there because uh, to the scientific world or the common person, you know, you you bring up giants or whatever, whether they'll either say there's either no evidence or, you know, they just don't believe it. Well, you know, why do you, it seems like it's kind of like a cover-up. Am I hitting that right? I mean, do they hide this stuff? Uh, very much so. And um, in in my book, Nephilim Chronicles, Fallen Angels in the Ohio Valley, it's an affirmation of the Bible. It's taking these people from the biblical lands into the Ohio Valley with all this evidence this is exactly who it is. Well, the end result is going to be an affirmation that the Bible was right, that there yeah. were, you know, the Amorites have been chronicled. We know there are real people. But there were giants. And um, that affirmation is something, of course, that academia does not want coming to white nine, so yeah. there is a cover up on this yeah absolutely absolutely and and i pretty much figured that's what it was but and that's what i really wanted to get out of you um you know uh this you know simple things like you know people talk about um you know goliath in the bible he was one of these creatures right well, he was, and if you read in there, it says that um, he was a remnant. So it wasn't like there were a lot of him, but that bloodline had come down. That's why he was big. But it does say he was a remnant, and in that I think they refer to the Rephiam, not the Nephilim, but the Rephiam, but basically the same thing. Um, but a remnant of, so his bloodline had gone back to these Amorite giants. But it wasn't like there were a lot of Goliaths. He was just kind of uh, a unique person uh, beyond that large. But certainly was accrediting his bloodline back to these people. Right, absolutely. Absolutely. And and so by admitting that there were giants, then uh, there you go. We're giving credence to the story about Goliath. Well, there there could have been a Goliath. There was a Goliath because see here there were there were giants. Um, I'm fascinated by the double rows of teeth. That is that common among these that you find that have been found. Uh, not real common, but um, I think I've got maybe twenty, thirty, so maybe ten percent, something like that. We'll we'll find that. And, again, that's just, you know, it's a, such an indication of a genetic anomaly of just kind of how wired genetically these people were, you know, and they had the massive jaw, some had the double rows of teeth. Um, and, again, it's just that abomination of, you know, what, uh, how these people must have looked. Except yeah. to the Hebrews who were relatively a small people, so... Somebody that was seven, eight foot tall, it would uh, definitely have left an impression on you. Okay, going with that. So, are these, um, they've been found, and from what I've been looking at on the pages. So, is, uh, let's say, just a call, well, could I get in my car and drive someplace and see these or fly someplace and see some of these skeletons? Are they available still? Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, we have skeletons. The uh, Smithsonian took uh, skeletons uh, in West Virginia, Ohio, as, as large as eight foot. But then they made their way back to Smithsonian, and nobody's ever seen them since. And uh -huh. the Smithsonian, especially around the turn of the century, if someone 
had reported that they had a large skeleton that they had covered, um, the Smithsonian came. The Smithsonian came and got it. And, you know, we're talking in the late 1800s, so it wasn't getting in your car and driving, so they had to take a train and then, you know, right. you know make arrangements to come to some small town in Indiana or Ohio or West Virginia or Kentucky or wherever it was. But they made a very concerted and uh, costly effort to gather up as many of these large skeletons as they can. But now what you can see, you can go to the Ohio Valley, you can see the earthen sun temples, also known as hinges. Everyone knows Stonehenge. They know the stones in the middle, but the earthwork on the outside of that is a circular earthwork with an interior ditch, outer wall, gateway aligned to a solar event, Stonehenge as summer solstice sunrise. But we have those hinges these circular sun temples all throughout the Ohio Valley. Um, we have conical mounds with circles around them, earth and berms, just like you would find in England. And so you can see these, and they're they're incredible. Um, you can go to Grave Creek; it's seventy foot high, and in that there was a woman who was seven foot six, and then underneath her, I believe, was probably her husband, was eight foot five, or that's still there, or the 60-foot mound at Miamisburg, Ohio. So some of these monuments are really impressive. And I list all of those. I have 222 sites to visit in Indiana, Ohio, West Virginia, and Kentucky, and the Nephilim Chronicles, the Travel Guide to the Ancient Ruins in the Ohio Valley. So I did a mound guide, which was 13 years of field work, and I visited over 700 sites to uh, put this book together. So... Um, Everything Uh-oh. is there. Um, there's some other guides that maybe had 70. This had 222. Wow. Um, uh, I, I uh, Anyway, I won't go into that. Um, my curiosity, first off, I'm uh, kind of backing up. We've got about two minutes for a break. But um, I'm curious, what uh, what tricked you, uh, you know, what got your interest in this, that you started this in the very first place? Something had to start you. What was it? Um, I have a... Uh, double major from Purdue, but one of them is in history, and uh, I also have one in uh, radio, television, communications. I was going to do a short documentary because um, I had just, and even with you know a, a degree in uh, history from Purdue, I didn't right. know we had all these ancient mounds. So um, where I live in Allen County, Indiana, we have the second largest genealogical library. It means I have uh, access to county histories from just about every state, every county in the U.S. And as I was doing the research for these uh, mounds that I was going to go out and photograph, I just started finding uh, giant skeletons. And so I just kept looking. So about 10,000 books later, um, I had the list that I published in uh, Fallen Angels in the Ohio Valley. So um, it was something that wasn't expected, but uh, it was so fantastic. And there were so many burial mounds that weren't documented, earthworks that weren't documented. So... Um, in one, I'm doing research finding giants, and the other, I'm I'm going out three times a week, uh, thousands and thousands of miles to uh, go out, seek out where these uh, ancient monuments were, and to photograph those, and then uh, provide yeah. the uh, reader with directions on how to go see them. Amen. Well, you, it, so it sounds like you didn't start off to do this; started out to do something else, and ended up with this. That's pretty amazing. Um, 
you're uh, now the, those two books. Uh, you can find them on Amazon, right, or some other specific place. Yeah. No, Amazon. Uh, look up Fritz Zimmerman or uh, put in Nephilim Chronicles. Nephilim is any P-H-I-L-I-M. It's kind of a hard one. Uh, right. uh, you pretty easy to find. Um, folks, It's uh, he also has a, a blog spot. It is called uh, moundbuilderblogspot.com. And, and uh, the other one is, well, let's see, what is it? It's, the other one is gianthumanskeletonsblogspot.com. But I'll tell you what, folks, wherever you listen to this in the radio archives, there will be links to this to where that you can just click on it and go, and you are listening live now. And there's probably a link over there someplace on my website right now. But we'll be back in three minutes with more Fritz. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. An important message from Donald Trump and Americans for Limited Government. Well, I'm a Republican. Right now, some in the Republican Party are working overtime to hand more power to President Obama. These same people are turning their backs on the American workers and businesses. It's unbelievable. I learned a long time ago, a bad deal is far worse than no deal at all. And the Obama Trans-Pacific Partnership and Fast Track are a bad, bad deal. For American businesses, for workers, for taxpayers, it's a huge set of handouts for a few insiders that don't even care about our great, great America. Congress has to stand up and defeat this raw power grab. With the dismal Obama track record, why should a Republican Congress give him more power and gut the Constitution to do it? It's just crazy. Tell your congressman and senator, vote no on Fast Track. Take action at Obamatrade.com. Obamatrade.com. running out, jobs leaving the country. Many people cannot afford to eat or keep a roof over their head. Too many can do neither. Messiah's Branch has a mission church in Wichita, Kansas that helps the victims of this banker's economy, the American people, your neighbors. The mission is the last hope for so many Americans. We need your help to lift up the poorest of the poor. These are men, women, and children who once had homes now in the street. They all need 
what you need. First aid, beds, food, clothing, and so on. You can send a monetary gift or a box of necessities to 230 West 4th Street, Florence, Kansas, 66851. Or donate online by going to wichitahomeless.com or simply call 316-619-4886 American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west transponder 23 frequency 12115 audio PID 2595 AVR is heard on the left side audio channel and AVR 2 is heard on the right side audio channel remember both AVR and AVR 2 are on Galaxy 19 same network double the choices This is Pastor Dan Catlin, and you're listening to Mission Watch Live on the American Voice Radio Network. Folks, please remember to pray tonight about a donation for our work with the homeless and poor from our mission church in Wichita, Kansas. Support us so we can care for the people that the Father sends us. We need your help so that we can uh, continue on. Because, you know, really, we don't get any help from the organized churches or government agencies. We use no government money. It's only folks like you that have supported us. For 15 years that make this mission church work. So why do so many people come to us for help? Well, love, that's the first answer. And treated as family is the second. You know, we try to give them relationships. We give a person a relationship, and then, you know, we help them out with with some food, and we help them out with clothing and Bibles. And then they ask for miracle prayers. We help them with that. That leads to salvation, of course. So, you know, we do these things. And, of course, the, the homeless are poor, but we also help poor people because we've established relationships with people over the 15-year period of time that the poor, when they're, you know, they're in their homes, but they're, you know, doing minimum wage jobs and they're trying to support families. So they come, you know, they still come to us looking for clothing and furniture. Just I can't even name all the things they come for. And so we don't have any guidelines like say, okay, fill out this form and you know, if you get everything right on it, you know, it's a quiz. If you get all the quiz questions right, then we'll help you. No, no, no. People walk in the door and ask for what they need, and, you know, we pray about it, and if, if we've got it, we give it to them. If we don't, we try and pray it in, and that's how it happens. And believe me, you would be amazed at some of the things that are dropped off at the mission church, and then we go, okay, well, what are we going to do with that? Well, not a problem because— Closely, real soon, somebody will ask for that particular thing. Anyway, this is why the agencies tell their employees about the Father's Little Mission Church. You see, when guidelines stop them from helping, they send people to us. People who have millions of dollars in their budget send people to a place that really has no budget. We are the last hope for so many, and we're all responsible to care one for another, as we are our brother's keepers. All donations, no matter what size, helps. 
And the Father notices all donations that come from where? Your heart. You can donate online or by mailing a check or money order, and you can find all this information at prophecyhour.com. And I know a lot of you folks out there don't touch the Internet. You're listening on radio. So you can simply just call me if you need to at 620-878-4682, 620-878-4682. And now we're having a real good conversation with Fritz Zimmerman. Are you there with me, Fritz? I am. Thank you. Well, I'm glad to have you back. And why don't you tell the folks the name of your your books again um, as we go into this second half of the program so they know. Uh, They are the Nephilim Chronicles, Fallen Angels in the Ohio Valley, and the Nephilim Chronicles, a travel guide to the ancient ruins in the Ohio Valley. So you can read about them, and then you can get in your car and visit some of the most fantastic ancient sites in the world. You don't need to go to England. You don't need to go to Greece. It's right here in our Midwest. Amen. I, I really like the, the, the sound of the, the second one. A travel guide, you know, to go see it. That That's really fascinating. I, I, I'm going to get both books. I, I just stumbled across you, um, I think, about a week ago or something when I tried to contact in. And I've been fascinated about it ever since. I can't wait to get to two books. Um, we, I was looking here at the website, and I'm looking at one that says, you've even found, it says, uh, there's a hundred thousand fairies or dwarf graves. Well, now, what's that in Tennessee? Dwarf graves. Uh, I'm going to have that in my next book uh, in about six, seven weeks. I'm going to have the Encyclopedia of Ancient oh, really? Giants in North America. And that's going to have about eight hundred accounts. Um, this is three hundred, and it's going to be. Not the same title, but it's certainly going to be a supplement to the Nephilim because it gives you the history in the Nephilim Chronicles. It gives you the history and who they were and how they worshipped and what they built. And um, right. it's going to be it's really good background knowledge to have about the Bible and you know some of the people that used to live uh, live there. Um, well, but by proving, like we talked about in the first half, and second, like we talked about in the first half, by you proving, and you know, and I'm sure others, you know, with looking at these pictures and things, um, by proving that these existed, it proves the Bible, and so that would solidify one's faith, would it not? Yes. Right, and that is the purpose of the Nephilim Chronicles is to affirm part of the Bible that maybe people have just glossed over. And, uh, you know, it's in there, but, you know, how important that is, how pervasive that was across the globe. And, you know, where else can we take biblical characters and transplant them into North America and then you be able to go and see, you know, circles that were made to uh, mark the sun, and earthworks that were made to mark the 18-year cycle of the moon, and all the that base religion that Abraham saw, that Jacob saw, um, how that was transplanted over here by the same people that they had contact with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're finding because now coming into this modern age, we're finding out a lot of things. Like um, with genetics, we're finding out um, there's a recent thing 
talking about, well, not real recent, maybe the last 10 years, but talking about how they're finding that uh, within the Cherokee Indians that there's actual, uh, you know, they can track their genetics back to Israel, you know, to Jewish blood. And so um, that's really fascinating. And so all these things are confirmations. I believe that we're living within the age of um, the Bible coming to a complete, so to speak, uh, a return of Yeshua. Um, and so I believe that in the latter days that there would be a lot of things that we would that we would find that would make confirmations of the word to give people a greater witness. Any thought? Yes, absolutely, absolutely believe that to be true, and uh, and I think people would find that um, with these books that uh, um, we can take stories from the Bible and then affirm that, like, that these people were here, and then. You know the rest of the story because they just disappear out of the Bible once they they left those uh, biblical lands. You know they're no longer part of the dialogue in the in the Bible. But in the Old Testament, and they're they're everywhere. I mean, they're such important characters, right. and they're not only that, but and it says God says that the Israelites were related to these people. The Amorites were their fathers, and. We just see things in the Bible that is just related to them. And, you know, the stone circles and that, that some of that was being admonished, but like I was saying, they weren't they weren't um, uh, praying to the same people as the Amorites. They were just using some of uh, the stone circles and some of the other things right. that that similar. But so I'm not saying that they were the same people. I'm just saying that there are things there that uh, uh, that they both used. Well, absolutely. Um, you know, when we look at, at even, uh, you know, looking in the Word, uh, when the Father told somebody, you know, he said, well, build an altar out of unhewn stone, you know, so they just basically stack rocks. Um, you know, these kind of uh, altars and things that, that are found with these um, relates to that, you know what I mean? Uh, the same type of buildings in, in a way, so to speak. Yes. Yeah, with that, and, you know, stone circles, where we have that, and we have several instances where stone circles were constructed um, by uh, early people in the Bible. So, um, but it just gives someone who reads the Bible just more information, more of the story. But it's one of the most fascinating stories in the Bible, which is ancient giant race. So, now that's coming to light, and, you know, as I mentioned before, but take biblical characters and transplant them over into the Ohio Valley and be able to gaze upon, you know, what they had constructed. These mm -hmm. earthworks in the Ohio Valley were used with the knowledge of pi and square root. Really? Advanced mathematics were used in the construction. At Newark, there's a circle and an octagon um, connected to one another. There over a thousand feet across each one. The circle can be placed into the octagon um, with a square, and it shows the thing you have a square, a circle, which is a, a circle and a square being of equal areas. And we also know that that advanced mathematics was developed by the Amorites. So here we have advanced mathematics being developed um, by the Amorites, we have that showing up in the Ohio Valley. 
So these things are just incredible. I mean, it's just incredible the uh, um, uh, mathematical and geometric uh, precision that these massive earthworks were constructed. Right, absolutely. Um, you mentioned you, you mentioned several times in our conversation England, but you can directly relate these back to England. I mean, you know, uh, the same type of things were that's they're found there. Um, yeah, um, close. both you know the circles and then uh, in England, and uh, they're they're identical. Um, we have uh, early on, and you know, the answer is like, well, why do they come here? Well, around 3000 B.C., 2700 B.C., the Amorites were engaged in metal trade, and it was the beginning of the Bronze Age, so um, you needed copper. And some of the largest and purest copper deposits are up at Isle St. Royal. Well, from that time period, if you look at the weapons of this copper people around Isle St. Royal, it's identical to what is being manufactured in the biblical Levant, of right. tang daggers and daggers with a midrib and sockets, which was a huge innovation. The socket that you have on your broom and your shovel, that was developed by the Amorites, and we have that showing up. So we have this advanced metallurgy and weapons technology showing up here, and, you know, I show that, and I can compare um, the weapon that you would have found in Hebrew at the same time in uh in Wisconsin, uh, around 2200 2500 B.C., and they are identical, absolutely identical. identical. So there's That's lots of evidence there to say, like, this really happened. Right, absolutely. That's what I'm after because, you know, archaeology proves the Bible. That's my belief. You know, I believe that these things, these things and some other things have been left there so that we would find them and, and agree with the, uh, to prove it. Um, my thought uh, question to you, then, so, you know, these people were here, so then surely there's tales among the Indians about these people, isn't there? Absolutely. Almost every Native American tribe has uh, a legend that a giant race used to live here. Some say that they they came from the east. Um, some say that they were light-skinned. Others say they were white-skinned. Um, all of them talk about the size of them. So, yeah, that is a common thread amongst Native Americans. So it's even better than that, that as these Amorites came through here, they mixed with Native American population. So the archaeologists called the Hopewell was actually the... Uh, confederation, because at one time they were all together. The Cherokee, the Sioux, mm -hmm. and the Iroquois actually were one people at one time. They split about 1500 B.C. Well, they left genetic markers. Um, one specifically is called Haplo X, which shows up in greatest numbers with the uh, Sioux, but also in Cherokee and Iroquois. Haplo X can be traced back to the Sea of Galilee. Really, and some genetic scientists have taken that back to about two and three thousand BC, which lines up perfectly with the Bronze Age and them starting to come over here. And you just mentioned the Cherokee have right. found roots all the way back to Israel. Well, now we know because we talked about earlier who was the Israelites. Well, their father was an Amorite, 
So the fact that the Amorites would hear would give them that bloodline back to Israel and the Israelites. Yeah. Yeah, so it's absolutely. all a big circle, and it's all a puzzle. And the thing about the puzzle is we don't have to make odd shapes fit into the wrong place. It all fits together. <laughs> Yeah, kind of like the left does, and I should, I guess I'll be nice about it, but um, like the other side, it tries to do, science does, um, try to eliminate things and then make sense out of it. Um, I think, would you agree with me that, uh, uh, you know, nowadays people can, you can, there's several places online, Ancestry.com for one, where you can just, you know, you can get a, a genetic test, you know, take a swab of your mouth, and it'll trace you all, you know, her back wherever. Um, I think that's interesting. Do you think that people might be surprised what they find? Uh, some would. Um, uh, I think Native America and some of them, especially Sioux and Cherokee and some of the Iroquois, I think they would be even more surprised of, uh, of their bloodlines. Um, but, yeah, I would agree. Yeah, absolutely. It would be interesting. Okay, well, so, okay, your books are, are the Nephilim Chronicles, Fallen Angels in the Ohio Valley, and the other one is what? It's a, a travel guide to... Right, same Yeti Nephilim Chronicles, a travel guide to the ancient ruins in the Ohio Valley. So uh, those are on Amazon. If you could put a link on your website for anyone interested to quickly go there, that would uh, that would be appreciated. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Listen, brother... Um, this will go into our radio archives at, at oh, about 10 o'clock. By 10 o'clock tonight, this will go into a podcast, I guess is what they call it, but a podcast site, and it will have a, a description of the radio program. It will have a picture that my, that my son will make up with the title on it about, you know, that explains the program. But so in that though we'll have I'll put some links in it. I'll put links to to the sites that you sent me to, and I'll put a link to the book so that people can easily find it. Um, I always do that for the the people that have been on radio, and especially with such a fascinating subject as this. Um, but I'm curious now. You got to tell me just a little bit about this new book that you're working on, this encyclopedia, and when's it coming out? I'm hoping maybe about six weeks been working on it for quite some time. I'm just, you know, when I published uh, Fallen Angels, I really thought that I had a pretty exhaustive list of giants where there's about 300 cases in there. Um, But since then, I just kept finding more and more. And (laughs) so now I'm up to about 800. Wow. And and it's just going to go into a little bit more um, evidence of the maritime archaic of of the different people that I talk about in the Nephilim Chronicles, and just provide more evidence. Uh, right, what's there? What's out there? And uh, uh, more double row teeth. We have some with horns out of their sticking out of their head. You mentioned uh, a yeah, dwarf or a pygmy race. Yeah, and let me comment on that. Let me Go comment ahead. on that real quick. You got about five minutes. In the, in the book of Enoch, it, it talks about the giants, and it talks about the religion. And their souls were sentenced to be earthbound. So when you go to a burial mound, that was a place where they came and they worshipped their ancestors. Because they didn't believe that their ancestors had gone to heaven. 
they believed their ancestors were right there. They were there. They inhabited the mound, and they were around the mound. Mm-hmm. But their souls were earthbound, and that, according to Enoch, was, I mean, that was God who said that. Like, your souls will be earthbound. Right. So the burial mounds themselves are kind of active spiritually, so watch out for that. But really? then another thing was that in Enoch they talk about fairies, and fairies are kind of a manifestation of spirits. And they sentence God sends those fairies to be earthbound. And the fairies are associated with these burial mounds. Well, there's a lot of reports of them finding these huge graveyards of these three-foot people, which is kind of odd because fairies generally you would think of as spirits, but there's something going on with that. And so I'll get into a little bit more of that with this new book of all these dwarf skeletons that are in these massive uh, burial grounds, and sometimes buried with giants, and sometimes, like, adjoining places where they find a giant, they'll find just hundreds of these tiny little skeletons that were not children because right. people then, of course, knew about the sutures and, you know, everything else. It's like, no, right, they're right. full-grown, but they're just tiny. So there's even more mysteries out there. And I'll get into some more of the mysteries in the new book. So um, wow. that would be like that. That would be the encyclopedia. I'm really fascinated. Um, I can't wait to get it. I encourage you folks to get it and to, to share with others these things and share this radio program. Um, Fritz, uh, um, thinking about it now, when you first started, you never think you was going to end up in this place, did you? Oh, no. Who does, though? <laughs> Who knows what path? But um, it's been exciting, and I've really been happy, and I've always thought that um, I was doing good works and making this uh, making uh, this information, you know, uh, available for people, yeah. and that it would act as an affirmation, and it would be something exciting to read, um, exciting to read a little more in depth about the ancient people in the Bible, but even more so is to go and gaze upon something here in North America that ties us to the right. biblical land. So um, it's a great opportunity for uh uh, yeah, amen. and you're providing a travel guide. I mean, what gets better than that? You know, uh, I, I'm really happy about it. Um, you know, and, and it is a blessed work because you are proving the Bible and you are, you know, you're proving truth. So it's a fascinating thing, especially when, like you say, I I knew there was, I've known about a lot of this. And I knew there was a cover-up and you, you couldn't find these things. That's why I was amazed when I seen how much that you had, you know what I mean? Uh, so it's a blessing, brother. You're uncovering some darkness there. Appreciate that. Well, okay. Well, we basically come to the end of the program. Um, again, uh, tell them the name of the two books, and uh, then I'll tell them your websites, and uh, I'll tell them where they can find everything. And then we'll probably – maybe we'll do it again after your encyclopedia gets out and I read it. Yeah, look for that, and then uh, contact me. But again, the books are the Nephilim, that's Nephilim, N-E-P-H-I-L-I-M, Nephilim Chronicles, Fallen Angels in the Ohio Valley, and the Nephilim Chronicles, a travel guide to the ancient ruins in the Ohio Valley, or type it Fritz Zimmerman in there, and I'm sure uh, you'll find it that way. But like you said, you'll have links, and uh, uh, amen, I will appreciate the audience tonight.
Okay, well, thanks for being on with me, brother. May the Father bless and keep you and keep you safe and bless your work. So thanks for being on with me, and we'll do it again. You be blessed. Bye-bye, brother. Okay. Bye, Pastor. All right. Well, folks, that was Fritz Zimmerman, um, the Nephilim Chronicles. You wouldn't believe, you've got to go over there. You've got to check these links out and go over there to this page and see all these different ones. And, you know, we've had some other people on our radio program that talked about these things and that are doing work in other places other than the United States. He's doing it in the United States. This is the Ohio Valley. This is interesting. And so I haven't had a chance to get the books. In fact, I just stumbled across Fritz last week, and I said, well, uh, I normally try to get a book first, but I just want you to I just want you to get on here and talk because I knew you folks could use it. So, you know, pray about it. And if you see a radio guest out there that you'd like for me to interview, make sure that you send me a link. Pray about supporting Wichita Mission Church. But above all, remember the Mission Church, you know, that where's that funded from? You know, the people that, that come there can't afford to pay for it. So it doesn't come from them. And I'm not rich. I'm not a rich man. You know, I live in a house I bought with back taxes. And, you know, it's uh, some people would call it a shack. But I've raised my family in it. And I've been in this house for 25 years. Um, but the point is, is, so I'm not a rich man. I can't fund everything. So where do we get our funding? It comes from people you that listen to us on radio. Well, there's a keyword, radio. Well, so if people don't hear me on radio, they're not going to hear about the Mission Church. And so then we're not going to be able to support the Mission Church. And so pray about supporting radio, airtime costs. We are satellite radio. As some people cost it, when they, I talk to people and I say, well, you want to be on? They say, well, satellite, you're on a real radio program. Not to say that podcast and the other stuff on the Internet aren't real, but you understand the difference. Um, we are on a program that broadcasts nationally. If the Internet goes down, we're still broadcasting. In fact, it's simulcast on the Internet. It's broadcast basically satellite, and you can listen to it on telephone. Uh, if you go to my website, go where it says listen to radio programs, it's got some different ways to listen to it, or go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com. It really has all the ways that you can listen to this radio program, and believe me, it's more than just tuning into the Internet, but the Internet's fine. Anyway, pray about a donation tonight. We really could use your help. Pray about it. We're going into summer, and donations usually go down during summertime, so we do need your help tonight. Pray about it. Anyway, uh, remember, there, these things that you heard tonight, what I do, uh, do believe what the Bible says and the book of Enoch says, that these started off as being crossbreeds between fallen angels and the daughters of men. Anyway, go read Genesis 6 yourself. We must remember there is only one God. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His son is Yeshua, HaMashiach. He gave his life for repented sins. And you know what? He rose from the dead after three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He said that was a sign that was given to a wicked and adulterous generation, was a sign of Noah, as Noah, or not the sign of Noah, excuse me, was a sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a whale, so would the Son of Man be three days and
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.